You know, those Good Friday hymns have such a poignance at the moment. I spoke on Wednesday, uh, mentioned Richard Raw's idea that to some extent, as we look out from our own grief and fear and whatever we're feeling and look out at everybody else, um, people in hospitals, it's a view from the cross almost. A lot of the times when we've had Good Fridays, it's been academic. We try and get ourselves into that mood of suffering, but we're very much here with it at the moment. I'm just going to invite you just to maybe, wherever you are at home, close your eyes. And just get a sense what's been going on with you this week, where you are right now. how you're feeling about things. What are the fears that have been uppermost in your mind? Maybe for yourself. Maybe for others. What have you been feeling this week? And as we come into this moment, what are the main feelings and thoughts you've got going on at the moment now? And I'm just going to invite you to let go of those thoughts and drop down and put your attention in your breath, in that heart center. that place of peace where we connect. And let's just consciously open our hearts to each other as we form this small community here. Open our hearts to that divine nature. Knowing that this place of peace, that heart feeling, is always open to us. A place where perfect love casts out all fear. Let's just rest in that peace. The peace that passes all understanding. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, come and cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I invite you to open your eyes, and we're going to welcome Greg. Greg, lovely to have you with us. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, appreciate this opportunity. Uh, Nicholas asked me quite a while ago, and I've been working on this actually for quite some time, about three or four months ago, I think. <laughs> I don't know how you do this every week. Oh, wait a minute, I remember. 
It's good to be retired. <laughs> so, but thank you for the opportunity. So one of the phrases that came to me during this time, I'm not too sure why it did, but the phrase or the sentence, these are the times that try men's souls. Does anyone remember where that might have come from? I couldn't think. I had to look it up. And it's written in a treatise entitled The American Crisis. It was written by Thomas Paine, but it was written December 23rd, 1776. It was reiterated by George Washington to his shivering, hungry, threadbare patriots before they crossed the Delaware and caught the British mercenaries off guard and captured them in their groggy hangover the morning after Christmas. I don't know if that's particularly, you know, a custom of the English or not. I don't remember that. Bit okay. Myself, no. <laughs> well, they captured them, uh, and it was a turning point for the American Revolution. And of course, today, we are going through another time that is trying everyone's souls. What can we possibly learn on this Passion and Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter? Now, Jesus was going through a time as well that was trying men's and women's souls. And during this time, Jesus was also a revolutionary. The tensions between the people of Palestine and the Roman government were extreme. Let's just take a little moment to look at the two processions which entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover and also typify the conflict. We're all familiar, because this Sunday is called Passion and Palm Sunday. We're all familiar with the story of Palm Sunday, Jesus entering a gate of Jerusalem in all humility on a donkey, and people are waving simple palms in his honor. Meanwhile, on the opposite side of the city, at the main gate of Jerusalem, so say historians, enters Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, in the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. It was the beginning of Passover, and the emperor wanted to make sure the Jewish people knew who was in charge of Jerusalem. Imagine the imperial processional arriving at the city, a visual panoply of imperial power, cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, gold eagles mounted on poles, sun glistening on metal and gold, included the sounds of marching feet, creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles and beating of drums. Pilate's procession not only represented imperial power, but also Roman imperial religion. The emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but taunted as being like a god. The emperor was considered a descendant of Apollo, and often referred to as Lord or even Son of God. This contrast between Jesus' kingdom of God Pilate's kingdom of Caesars is central to the story of Jesus, the early followers, and even crucifixion. Now, Jesus' processional is biblical in that it uses symbolism from the ancient Hebrew prophet Zechariah in the ninth chapter. Rejoice, people of Zion. Shout for joy, you people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble and riding on a donkey. The Lord says, I will remove the war chariots from Israel and take the war horses from Jerusalem. The bows used in battle will be destroyed 
and your king will make peace among the nations. Mark uses, Gospel of Mark uses this metaphorical prophecy to honor the message of Jesus. Now a significant irony is the fact that Jews at this time of year were observing Passover, which was about remembering their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And now they have again become subservient to Rome as the current Egypt and Caesar as the current Pharaoh. They're practically becoming enslaved again. And the other irony is the fact that 300 years later, the very government which is putting Jerusalem in turmoil and persecuted Christianity, that very government became Christian foundation. Roman rule was based on might makes right. Jesus' message was simply based on love makes right. Jesus, of course, said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, of course, and reiterated in the Hebrew text, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, even love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How we do this is probably another question. We are surrounded in this beautiful chapel with more words of Jesus which completely countered that Roman imperial way of life. And of course they are called the Beatitudes or blessings. And all around us here are blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. And one of the last ones is, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for great is their reward in heaven. And in the back of this chapel, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Now initially, as maybe some of you can remember, this chapel was called the Aspen Chapel of the Prince of Peace. The founders of this chapel took that message of Jesus most sincerely and seriously. They were of the Mennonite faith and took these pacifistic words of Jesus to heart. Now, back then, common people identified with Jesus' message, and his popularity with the masses became a threat to the megalomania of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was martyred for his beliefs. He went to his death as humbly as he entered Jerusalem. There's a connection between Passion and Palm Sunday. And even when Judas came to Gethsemane to reveal Jesus' identity with a kiss, a kiss of death, as it were. The armed soldiers seized Jesus, and then someone, just says someone, who was with Jesus drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and, and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus was taken to Caiaphas, and the disciples fled. Even when Jesus was threatened with his life, he refused to assert any reaction of force. Jesus' message was non-militaristic, non-violent. 
Was his death part of the message of peace? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is reported to say, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, that one lay down their life for their friends. Jesus' death was a sacrifice for his message and purpose of life. We all sacrifice a lot for a greater good. And in, so many of us are doing this right now for a greater good. Now, I do not believe Jesus sacrificed his life simply for the forgiveness of people's sins. This notion of this type of ancient sacrifice, I think, is a bit archaic for us today, if not even prehistoric. I cannot conceive of whatever our image might be of this God, of any benevolent God needing to be appeased through any human sacrifice. It just doesn't make any sense for me. In the earliest gospel of Mark, there's only one word which is translated as ransom. The Greek word is lutron, and the English transliteration is simply L-U-T-R-O-N, and is used to refer to as a means to liberate, such as liberating captives in war or slaves from slavery. Lutron is a means of liberation from bondage. It is primarily the epistles of Paul and the Gospel of John, which later on interprets Jesus' death as a sacrifice of people's sins, or at least as many as have interpreted. And I also do not believe Jesus died as a prelude to a physical resurrection. Rather, his death reflects a surrender to a greater good and meaning in his life, in life in general. And that meaning is, of course, an unprecedented, unconditional love. It's more accurate to say that Jesus did not die for our sins, but because of our sins. In Reverend Charles Queen's book, Why Call Friday Good, he states that whereas Jesus represented humanity at its very best, what was done to Jesus at Golgotha represented humanity at its worst. Jesus had come to show humanity the way of humility and love, but what he felt was the full force of humanity's arrogance and hate. In essence, Jesus was martyred for his radical message of love, compassion, a message as most meaningful throughout history since. This can give probably new meaning to Jesus' words, which always have troubled me a little bit. If anyone would follow me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I don't think Jesus was meaning, yeah, come and die with me in that sense, but to take up that message that may have led to the cross. For he said, whoever would save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, I guess this is similar to emptying oneself in Buddhism. Spirituality is often simply about letting go. It's about the little letting goes until the big letting go in the end. The phrase letting go was included in just about every message and lecture by Cynthia Bourgeau here at the chapel. In essence, the story of Good Friday is simply good enough. 
It's not a preface, but a purpose. Theologian Jurgen Moltmann said, Good Friday is the most comprehensive and most profound expression of Christ's fellowship with every human being. He stands in union and solidarity with every suffering soul. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, said Jesus. And let us remember another quote of Cynthia Bourgeau, entitled of one of her many books, Love is Stronger Than Death. Death can still be our teacher about love. Now our task is not necessarily to defy death, but to defy hate. Whether we die today, tomorrow, 40 years from now, our task is to love before we die and even while we die. Richard Rohr says, in avoiding, in our, in avoiding death, one ironically avoids life. Last Sunday, Nicholas reminded us that there is no fear in this unconditional love. Love is more important than any of our fears today. And he said, just said now, we each have our part to play. Jesus showed us on Good Friday, these are the times that try men's souls. These are the times when only love can prevail. And I think his death is obviously an example of how we all should live. Jesus died because, and I came up with this phrase that I kept saying to myself that I like, he lived a life of luminous love, demonstrable love. I've learned more about life through death, memorial services here, than anything else. The cross can be such a central symbol of Jesus' message, which again was a radical, revolutionary, reformational, transformational level of love. Now, unfortunately, we do have a hard time learning this incredible love. Some people have come close. Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King come to mind. And King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can never drive out hate. Only love can do that. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found challenging and often untried. Is Christianity a religion today just about Jesus or of Jesus? If it's just about Jesus, we've minimized Jesus and missed the point. If it is of Jesus, it will make a difference how we live every day. Richard Rohr said that the Sermon on the Mount, which these Beatitudes are part of, is the essence of Jesus' teachings, but least, the least quoted. Too many Christians sought a prize of later salvation instead of the freedom of the present simplicity and how we live to our very best. This should change the world like Mahatma and Martin did. What would Jesus do is more than just a bracelet. 
Jesus did not come to start a new religion, as far as I can tell, but to simply show us how to live and to really, really live. Now, I think this resurrection thing is a good thing. But meanwhile, we need to bring a little more heaven to earth. And I don't mean down to earth. Heaven is not just up there, but all around us. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray so often. And I'm saying this morning that the reason for Jesus' death is very significant. It's the reason, if not more so than even the story of his resurrection. I might add here that even though I am, just let me just say politely, I hope, that I'm more than suspicious about a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. But I believe in resurrection. Call it a spiritual resurrection. I believe that something of life goes on, but cannot comprehend what that might be. It remains a statement of faith and trust. I also believe that even the mythology, mythology of Jesus' resurrection has a great meaning for our lives. Jesus said, be not afraid. It does mean that death is not the victor, but in another way, a victory. To surrender to impermanence is to survive every moment vitally alive. Jesus taught us to love life and one another through all of life, no matter what may be facing us. Jesus also showed us that complete love casts out fear. Now, Nicholas shared with us last Wednesday, and alluded to them just now, Richard Rohr's five essential truths of life, which are life is hard, none of us are that important, your life is not just about you, we are not always in control, or he says we're just not in control, and we are going to die. There's a lot, of, you can look this up, and there's a lot of uh, comments that he makes about this. And one of the introductions to those four essence of life, which I thought was very good, and thank you, Nicholas, for bringing that to our attention during this difficult time. He said, in the larger than life, I find a common denominator in same sense they have all died before they died and thus they are larger than death too they went through a death of their various false selves and came out on the other side knowing that death could no longer hurt them they feel like the they're living in the big love and the big freedom which many of us can call god is his introduction to those five points. And I like this phrase, passing from death to life now. In life abundantly, said Jesus. Now, we can all be scared. I know we can wake up in the middle of the night and wonder if we have any symptoms. Somehow, we still need to trust in life and life always. My message is simply that love is foremost and does really cast out the fear. And that even if our worst fears, we still can trust. Even if the worst 
thing could come to being, and that is also all around us right now. We can still, as people of faith, all people can still somehow trust in the goodness of life. After all, next Sunday is Easter. Meanwhile, there's a prayer for a time that can try our souls. And this prayer came to me. It's about the same time, about the same time as Thomas Paine's phrase in the uh, 1700s. This was even a little bit before. It was published in the New England Primer, published in 1690, for all the children and the students in the new colonies. Maybe you've said it before. I know I've learned to say it. Dear Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. May God's love guard me through the night and wake me in the morning light. And if I should live another day, I pray the Lord to guide my way. I think I learned this in grade school. And speaking of grade school, the first grade school, grade school I went, I attended, was Julia Ward Howe Grade School in Minneapolis. She wrote these words in 1861 in her zeal to liberate slavery. Another form of liberation we've gone through in this country. And we will be liberated again. So another story of revolution and freedom. As she wrote, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, as I'm looking at a lily on the stained glass window right across from me, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. In the glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. While God is marching on, glory, glory, hallelujah, God's truth is marching on. Amen. Thank you.